This is the serene sound of the rugged, dry coastline of northwest Corsica in France. I'm making my way along dusty hiking trails that fall away through scrub to the clear, sparkling Mediterranean sea below. There's almost no one else out here in the midday heat. But the best way to reach my destination is this hot and dry hike with a backpack full of recording gear and plenty of sunscreen. As I curve past a secluded cove, I get my first glimpse of where I'm heading. A marine science institute that blends with the camel-coloured cliffs behind it. It sits just below a lighthouse tucked into a reinforced cove. It's hard to reach, almost hidden, and it feels cut off from the world. But that's all intentional. The road towards Corsica is deliberately kept in a very bad state. It's this convent or this being in a monastery effect, being separated from the rest of the world. Hey, I'm Carl Smith, and this is Strange Frontiers, a short series about scientists pushing boundaries in places you wouldn't usually get to visit. And today, just off Corsica's coastline, a bizarre and fascinating phenomenon, the mysterious flashes from the deep. It looked like a glittering diamond in the sea, something that's really super conspicuous, brighter than anything else on the background. And this was a moment where I thought, whoa, these guys have a switch. They have a light switch. As I get closer to the Institute, I see more of the structure that was previously camouflaged. It looks a bit like a nautical-themed mansion, and a small boat is gliding into its protected private cove. After the last rough descent down to this isolated research station, I find myself a blissfully shady spot next to the quay with clear sparkling water and a stunning view back along the French island's coastline. The water is indeed very transparent. You can see the rocks very nicely. And if the water is calm, you can see the fish swimming down to 10 meters. And across the bay, we can see the highest mountains of Corsica. We even see some snowy patches there. The highest mountain there, the Monte Cinto, is just next to that snowy patch over there. So this is a beautiful scenery, of course, and it's a bit of a privilege to be able to work here. This institute was designed to help scientists get into the water. Some are jumping off the patio into the waves right next to me. And my guide for today has an angry red mark on his forehead from a dive earlier that morning. Okay, my name is Nico Michiels, and I'm a professor in animal evolutionary ecology at the University of Tübingen in Germany. The bump is because I went out for a swim this morning. I swam straight into one of the jellyfish that come in in the summer. And I'm currently standing in Stareso, which is a marine field station in Corsica. And so what does STARESO stand for? STARESO is an acronym from the French Station de Recherche Sous-Marin et Océanographique. And it literally means Research Station for Marine Research and Oceanography. And it has been founded in 1972 by the University of Liège in Belgium. Can you describe what it looks like? So the building, the, the station itself, is a very special kind of architecture which blends in well with the background. It has a lot of straight lines, but then also curved lines and circular openings in some parts of the building. It looks like a jumble of well-camouflaged beige blocks 
with what look like grotto mouths cut into them, right on the edge of the water. It feels more like a sculpted cave, with doorways and windows opening right out onto the sea. So people here work mainly on overall environmental issues like seagrass, meadow health and changes in plankton diversity over the years. Our own project focuses entirely on fish, so we work on a small triple fin which occurs in high numbers in this area. We want to understand how this small triple fin prevents running into its cryptic predators. And so there's a lot of interesting visual interactions of camouflaging and trying to not be seen and trying to uncover or break that camouflage. And it's this interaction between predator and prey that I'm particularly interested in. And yes, that interaction involves an unusual flashing underwater light. We'll come back to that shortly. But first, Professor Michiels takes me for a quick tour. Now, the first room we see here is a workshop. Following that is a, a shaded area on the outside with a lot of benches with space for sometimes up to 50 or 60 people, depending on who is visiting, which is the dining area as well. He tells me that the natural cove was once used for fishing, but now a protective rock wall that looks like it could be a part of the ancient citadel of Calvi, just up the coast, juts out to protect the small harbour. So we are now in the area where people dress up or take off their dive gear. And I believe we can see just into some of the wet labs here on our left. Yes, that's right. So wet lab is basically one long corridor which uses flowing seawater. We have two larger tanks on the outside. And as we go on into the corridor, now you can probably already hear some bubbling in the background, which are uh, some big aquaria, which are used as holding tanks for samples taken directly from the field. That includes fish for the two main experiments currently taking place here from two different groups, and some spiny lobsters. We find a shady spot under a stone wall. Occasional bursts of sea breeze rustle our hair, but otherwise it's a clear and calm day. This isn't the first field research station I've visited, and there's something similar about all of these sites. Isolation from the outside world is a fundamental part of the design, which is why I had to hike all the way out here. Particularly in summer, we have hundreds or thousands of people that want to explore the area, and this is why the road towards Corsica is virtually deliberately kept in a very bad state. So nobody would want to go across this road, certainly not with their own car, only maybe for a hike or a mountain bike. But even then, as you come closer to the station, there are more and more warning signs that you're entering private property and you're not supposed to go get in, and this is only for scientific purposes. It's the kind of place that researchers can escape to. Here they can focus on the hands-on parts of their research, and they're given time and space away from regular demands to think while they're busy with their projects. At home, at the University of Tübingen, there's lots of teaching, lots of administration and so on. All that stuff is far away when you're here. If you're in an environment like this, where nature, the water, the rocks behind me, nobody asks something from me. I can go around and look and observe and be surprised and whatever, but nobody's demanding anything. It allows you to concentrate more. It's this convent or this abbey effect. 
I don't know if it's the midday heat, but there is a kind of meditative stillness here. The researchers I see tend to keep to themselves. And talking with scientists, it's often in the field, at places like this, that they have enough time and space to spot new patterns or come up with new explanations for the phenomena that they're studying. For Professor Michiels, it was an accidental discovery in the field on a trip like this one that completely changed the trajectory of his career. Many years ago, during a diving expedition, he decided to try tinkering with his mask purely out of curiosity. Yeah, so for about 10 years, I had been diving mainly for research on sea slugs and marine flatworms. And on this one particular year in 2007, in Egypt, in the Red Sea, I had an idea about coloration and fish, which would rely on the presence of red light in deeper water. The red wavelengths of sunlight don't penetrate deep into the ocean, which is why everything looks more blue or green at depth. But he wanted to check if even a bit of red light made it down deep. So he put a special filter on his mask that only let in red wavelengths. And lo and behold, no red light from the sun. On top of this, that filter on his mask blocked all other light, which made for a terribly boring dive. I was very disappointed at first because it turned out that within a few meters, everything turned black. And this is midday on a sunny day in Egypt. And so I thought, oh, this effect is much stronger than I expected. And he thought, oh, well, that idea didn't stack up. Fun experiment. Now let's move on. But then, barely able to see a thing through the mask filter, serendipity struck. I dived a little bit deeper together with my partner, and then I started to see the corals glow in red. More and more of it. And as we went deeper and deeper, it was more and more obvious that certain corals fluoresce. And after noticing this surprising red glow, he spotted something even more dramatic. All the fish, most of the fish, were completely invisible until we all of a sudden saw at least one species that was very strongly red. The eyes looked like red laser dots, like of a, a laser pointer on the reef. And so this is the moment where I thought, this is something special. There must be something going on here. Because red wavelengths of light couldn't make it down that far, this meant the fish and the coral were emitting this red light, making it themselves somehow. This wasn't what he set out to study, but it would turn out to be a breakthrough finding, all born out of a chance observation on a field trip. And it's opened up a new field of research, exploring how fish might be using these strange glowing signals. As it turns out, the process I had observed and discovered was red fluorescence in fish. And this changed my field of research quite dramatically because obviously discovering something really exciting like this keeps you awake at night. And this is how my interest in fish and fish visual systems started. So you noticed this spectacular light show of reds and rusts and this set you off to look at all the other unusual lights that are coming from creatures under the sea. Yeah, so the original observation was that it is the eyes of fish that can be very fluorescent, particularly in very small fish. So it seemed as if eyes are not just used to see things, but also to emit a signal, to emit light. 
And I started to work on uh, this particular species of triple fin here in the Mediterranean because the Mediterranean is easy to reach for us and it had very fluorescent eye rings. Triple fins are small, timid, bottom-dwelling fish. They have two large front fins to help them hop around on the seafloor and they're often dull-coloured. But it's his work on this unremarkable fish, which lives here on the Corsican coastline, that had me hiking all the way out here to meet him. Following that discovery of red fluorescence, he started studying the eyes of these triple fins, using Stareso as his base. Initially, his focus was just on this red glow emanating from their eyes. But serendipity struck again, and he stumbled across another remarkable underwater phenomenon hidden in plain sight. We started to realise that sometimes, every now and again, you would see a really strong sparkling effect below the pupil on the iris of the fish. It looked like a glittering diamond in the sea, something that's really super conspicuous, so brighter than anything else on the background. Although this is a fish that really tries to be very cryptic and is very careful in not giving away its position. So what was this fish doing? He would come to call this an ocular spark. Ocular as in connected to the eye. And he still remembers the first time he and his team saw it happening. Well, the very first moment where we saw an ocular spark was a coincidence, as usual in science. You have to be always aware of the unexpected. Students in my lab had put a triple fin in a tank. At that time, we were only looking at fluorescence. And they were making a constant recording with a video camera. And then they looked at the video and they said, hey, Nico, come, come and have a look. There's something strange here. And you could see how that triple fin was rotating its eye, like really rotating like a wheel, switching an ocular spark on, which was very bright, and turning it back, switching the ocular spark off. And this was a moment where I thought, whoa, these guys have a switch. They have a light switch. They can really go from one to the other at will. This is not a coincidence. This is just not an artifact of the design of fish eyes. This is something that they use. An underwater spotlight flashing out from a fish's eyeball. Incredible and bizarre. But how could a little nondescript fish create a flashlight phenomenon using their eyes? This phenomenon, which we now call ocular spark, is produced by the fact that light that strikes a fish, sunlight that comes from above and strikes a fish, will also be able to pass through the lens of that fish without entering the eye. And this is because the lenses of the eyes in fish are spherical, and as a consequence, part of that sphere sticks out of the pupil which is very different from our eyes. You often see in, in pictures of these triple fin fish, the eye sort of bulges out the side of the head. Yes, exactly. And so the consequence is that light can pass through that lens without entering the pupil, but as a consequence, because it's just gone through a lens, it will be focused. So it's being focused just below the lens on the iris of the fish, and the fish can control where that focal point hits the iris by rotating its eye in a subtle way and it literally can decide whether to produce a flash of bluish white light which is then the, the sparkling diamond effect that we saw in the field or a red 
sparkling strong effect, which is then referring more to the fluorescence which they have in most of the iris. The red fluorescence is unusual, especially coming from an eyeball. But I've seen some videos of these bright white ocular sparks, and they're really dazzling. It's almost like these triple fin fish have a little mirror just below their pupils that captures this sunlight from above and reflects it out like a bright sparkle. It really does look like they can switch a torch on that fires light out from the inside of their eyeballs. In fact, this ocular spark, everybody can see. You don't have to go to an aquarium and there's bound to be at least 50% of the fish that you see that have these ocular sparks, which is even more surprising if you think about the fact that this has never been described before, because you can see it everywhere in so many fish. Why hasn't this been described and, and looked at in the past? I have no idea, to be honest. I think one main reason could be that in underwater photography, it's very habitual for people to use flash guns and so ocular sparks cannot be seen when you take flash pictures. So this is one reason. The other reason I think is because maybe people collect fish and then work on samples, dead specimens or something, where of course you're also not going to see this effect. So I guess many people have just thought it's a bit of an artificial side effect. This dazzling eye-flashing display was so bright and bizarre and widespread that Professor McYells put aside some work on red fluorescence and made ocular sparks his main focus. After understanding the mechanism, his next step was trying to figure out why it happens. Are the triple fins doing this on purpose? And if so, why would they? Well, he has an intriguing theory. We are assuming that it is really an active form of re-emitting the light of the sun to improve detection of something else. We call this active photolocation. Again, a term that we had to invent, which you could compare to echolocation in bats, which use sound to then listen for the reflections and then understand their environment. With active photolocation, the assumption is that they send out enough light to generate reflections in their environment that are strong enough that they can perceive them. Now, it is obviously true that this is a tiny amount of light that is being sent out there. So the targets they're looking for must be targets that are extremely reflective. Now, the most reflective targets that exist in nature are things like cat's eyes, which probably everybody knows. They are highly reflective, particularly in the dark. We know them quite well, of course. But in the sea, the interesting thing is that many organisms have highly reflective eyes also. So he believes that these little triple fins might be using these flashes from their eyeballs to try to light up the highly reflective eyes of hidden ambush predators. You can think of it as a bit like holding a torch next to your head at night out in the bush and flicking it on and off. This would let you catch a bright reflection of that light from a watchful hidden predator's eyes, like that strange eye shine you can sometimes spot from cat's eyes. The effect is so strong because eyes act as a very special type of reflector, which is called retroreflector. A retroreflector has this magical property of sending all the light straight back to the source, which means the effect is extremely strong. The fact that the light spot is next to the pupil is very suggestive for a function in detecting retroreflective eyes or to generate eye shine in other organisms. If they really are doing this, actively flashing light out of their eyeballs, 
to try to spot hidden predators. It would be a pretty incredible and sophisticated mechanism for a tiny and, let's face it, boring looking fish. So, after documenting oculus barks, Professor McYells and his team have been coming out here to Staresso for about a month every year to build elaborate underwater tests designed to see whether this theory stacks up. Basically, this involves putting triple fins in a tank separated by glass from one of their major predators, scorpionfish. And then they give the triple fins little underwater hats that can stop them from generating an ocular spark. It's pretty cute. We came up with the idea of gluing tiny little hats on the triple fin's head. The hats would stick for about a few days and then fall off automatically. And there's two types of heads that we use. There's one type that was transparent, was sort of the control treatment, which would still allow ocular sparks to form. And the other one was a shading hat, which prevents ocular sparks from being formed. And it looks like a little black visor from mm. what I've seen. Yes, exactly. And in our experiment, we expected them to see worse when trying to detect a scorpion fish, because obviously it shields the eye from incoming sunlight. In a set of tanks bobbing around just outside the cove next to us, triple fins with clear hats or black visors were put opposite scorpion fish, separated by glass. This allowed the team to see if triple fins acted differently when they had black visors on, which blocked their ability to fire out an ocular spark and detect a predator's eye shine. And in the end, we could show that fish that had a shading hat would significantly come closer to the scorpion fish than the fish without a shading hat. So does that mean they're definitely using ocular sparks for photolocation to try to catch out predators based on their reflected eye shine? The experiments themselves are not 100% conclusive yet because we have not been able to manipulate the reflectors in the scorpion fish. Unfortunately, the scorpion fish didn't take so well to hats, which could have helped the researchers test whether their eye shine from an ocular spark scares off the little triple fins. But Professor McKeels and his team have been putting together a body of work from this Corsican coastline that supports his theory that this weird eye flashing is all about spotting predators' eye shine. At least from a theoretical perspective, we do know that the amount of light that comes out of a triple fin's eye, of an ocular spark of a triple fin, is sufficient to generate an effect in the eye of the scorpion fish that should be perceptible by the triple fin under average conditions. But we do think that our current data are very suggestive, that there is something going on, and this is why we continue with this research. And if we can confirm it works in triple fins as we expect it will, then my prediction is that it's going to be something people will discover in so many other species as well. And so their work continues, year after year catching fish, putting cute hats on them, and testing how their eyes sparkle. It's not a bad job, and not a bad place to call home for a month every year. But Professor Nico Michiels, my guide for today, says the privilege of doing this work in such idyllic surroundings at Staresso amidst secluded natural beauty, helps keep him honest. And the meditative, still seclusion of this site might be just what he needs to unearth the next big mystery hidden beneath the waves. For me, it turns into a responsibility. Every time I come down from the lighthouse where we spend our night, I think, well, this is an absolute privilege, so better work hard. 
And this is so different from everyday life now at home or at work or whatever. It's this convent or this being in a monastery effect, being separated from the rest of the world and being able to concentrate on what you are interested in. It's a very beautiful convent, this architecturally designed structure that blends in with the cliffs, with its own little harbour and a step out into the sea. So thank you so much for telling me about your work here, Nico. My pleasure. Thank you, Carl.